anytime we launch a new series, I always find it helpful uh, to start the series with uh, some preliminary comments, to just kind of set the tone and the trajectory of the whole series. So here are a few comments uh, before we dive in. First, we are in this together. We are in this together. What I mean by that is that you are not getting to hear from experts in this series, okay? You're getting to hear from other moms and dads who are in the thick of raising kids. We are just trying to figure this thing out together. I originally wanted to call this series The Blind Leading the Blind because in some ways that's what this feels like. So please know that no one who's going to stand before you over the next several weeks has it figured out. In fact, all of us would admit that we don't have it figured out, which is why we're doing this. We're trying to figure it out together, and all we have is the Word of God. So we are not leaning on our own expertise in the coming weeks. We are leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit as it relates to discipling children. Okay, second thing. This is not a parenting series. It's a discipleship series. This is not a parenting series. It is a discipleship series. This is not a series on the best practices for parenting. So here's the implication. This isn't only for parents. It's for all of us, for every one of us. If you call TCC home, this series is designed for you, especially, in some ways, those of you who are not parents. This past week, I was talking with a gal in our church who is not yet married and does not yet have children, and she was talking about the importance of this series. And she wrote me an email, and I just pulled part of what she wrote. I want to read you some of her words. So this is a woman in our church who does not have children says this. We believe community ought to be intergenerational. So, to the best of my ability, I ought to find myself in community with kids on a regular basis. And because I expect my community to care about how truly terrible online dating is, which is not relevant to most of their daily lives in any way, shape, or form, it is not an unreasonable expectation that I be invested in my community people's lives as parents. All of that to say, I am not off the hook for the next five weeks. Learning how to disciple kids and how to encourage parents and grandparents and guardians as they disciple kids is part of my discipleship to Jesus. So this is not a series just for parents, but for all of us in the room, okay? Third and lastly, I would say this, be gracious to yourself. Be gracious to yourself. Years ago, I was having a particularly heavy day. I had just come off of a, a full week of silence and solitude, and I was if you've ever done that, you know how vulnerable and raw you feel at the end of a an extended amount of silence and solitude. And the first person I ran into was my friend Abby. Now, Abby is this very insightful, spiritually sensitive uh, human, and I just have so much respect for her. And she saw me, and I think she could tell that I was not doing well. And she just smiled, and she said, Justin, be gracious to yourself. Now, for her, it was just a throwaway line and a passing conversation, but for me, it was timely. And years later, I look back at that moment, and it still stands out to me. And I still say that to myself sometimes. Justin, be gracious to yourself. Here's why I bring that up. There are going to be moments in this series where you might feel overwhelmed or guilty, where you might feel as though you can never do all the things we talk about here. You might feel as though you are failing as a mom or a dad. Additionally, there are those of you in the room who have already raised your children, and you are going to hear some of this and perhaps look back at your parenting with regret or shame. And you're going to go, man, I wish I would have known this before I had teenagers, or I wish I would have known this before my kids launched. And here's what I would say to all of us. Be gracious to yourself. Just be very gracious to yourself as we navigate this, okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1, we're going to do a flyover of the scriptures, talking about what the scriptures have to say about children and our responsibility to disciple children. So we'll start where all good stories begin in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 26. We're going to flip around a lot and move quickly. So if you don't want to turn there, although I would encourage you to, but if you don't want to, all these will be on the screen. Genesis 1 verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, notice the plural language here at the beginning. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit collectively saying, let us create mankind in our image. My professor in seminary, Gary Brashears, used to always say, God is a family who builds a family. God is a family who builds a family. Now, the story continues. Keep reading. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, now listen to this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, here's what he says, fill the earth with children. Now, I want you to consider this. God did not have to design it this way. He didn't have to create the world in such a way that we had to be born into it as babies and then grow up through all the awkward adolescent years. He could have created an entirely different system, no childbirth necessary, where you just walk through a magical door into creation as a full-grown adult, and you get to bypass the teenage years. But he didn't do it. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. Genesis 1 reminds us that children are part of God's good and intentional design. Contrary to how it might feel some days, toddlers are not part of the fall, okay? (laughs) They behave that way because of the fall, but they are part of God's good design. Okay, to your right, Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verse 3, says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, I want you to pay attention to verse 3. That word there, heritage, in verse 3 is this word in Hebrew. It's pronounced nahala. You have to kind of get that like sound. Uh, In Hebrew class when I was in seminary, I pronounced it nachala one time because I think I just love nachos and I think I just read it that way. And my Hebrew professor just looked at me with such sadness. Just like, (laughs) how did you get into this school? So it's Nahala, don't, not Nahala, okay, you get it. Okay, this word is used all over the Old Testament, some 224 times in our Old Testament. And here's the fascinating thing. In almost every instance, it's used to refer to the inheritance of the Jewish people of the promised land. So, in other words, what the promised land was to the Jewish people, our children are to us. It's an inheritance from the Lord. Okay, let's go Psalm 139, turn to your right again. Psalm 139, verse 13, the psalmist says to the Lord this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here's what the psalmist just reminds us of. Every human from the moment of conception is known and loved and fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Now, we often want to read this psalm and immediately think of ourselves, which is great. We need to apply the scriptures to our own life. But it also applies to other people, and in particular for our topic today, it applies to children. Now, you need to understand that this was not a common view at this time. It wasn't a common view when Jesus stepped into the world. Children were not valued. Children were not honored. They were not appreciated in any way. One commentary I read said it like this. If there was one dominant fact regarding children in the ancient world, it was their high mortality rates, especially among infants. Many newborns were stillborn or died in labor. Those who made it safely out of the womb often went hungry. There were too many mouths to feed and too little food. As a result, children were often abandoned, exposed to the elements, and literally left on trash heaps to die. That's the context that this is being spoken into. But the psalmist reminds us, no, from God's perspective, this is not okay. This is not okay. Every child on this planet, regardless of legal status, mental health, physical health, special needs, behavior, is known and loved and cherished by God. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now let me get on a little hobby horse for just a second because it's a, this is really important for us to grasp in our culture because we live in a day and age where the vast majority of society does not believe we were created by a good, benevolent God, but rather we are just some byproduct of evolution. And I'm not, this isn't a science debate. This isn't a science conversation. I just want to address this fact that we have a society that believes that we are somehow some sort of cosmic accident, that there is no intentional design behind it. Let me show you this by just reading you one quote. This is from Bertrand Russell. Russell is a philosopher, mathematician, Nobel Prize winner, not a follower of Jesus or a friend of Christianity. Listen to how he describes humanity. He says this, the universe, as astronomy revealed it, is very vast. How much there may be beyond our telescope show, we cannot tell. But what we can know is of unimaginable immensity. In the visible world, the Milky Way is a tiny fragment. Within this fragment, the solar system is an infinitesimal speck. And of this speck, our planet is a microscopic dot. Now listen to this. On this dot, tiny lumps of impure carbon and water. That's you, by the way. That's who he's talking about. Of complicated structure with somewhat unusual physical and chemical properties crawl about for a few years until they are dissolved again into the elements from which they are compounded. What a sad and empty worldview. Friends, what we see all throughout the Bible is that our good and loving God knit us together in our mother's womb, that he knows us, that he loves us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. All children are part of God's good design. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Again, we're just doing like a flyover of the scriptures here. Verse 1 says this, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now this was a pretty common struggle for the disciples. They bring this up quite a bit. And here they are again just jockeying for position within the kingdom. And calling to him a child, verse 2, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you all, y'all, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven of God, kingdom of heaven. Now, this alone would have shocked the original audience because kids, again, had no value in this society. But then Jesus takes it even a step further. Look at verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. That's harsh. 
That word in verse 5, receive, is this word, dekomai, in the Greek. It's often used to describe the way one would welcome a traveling missionary into their home. Professor and author David Fitch says of this word dekomai, he says, it connotes patience, embrace, openness, and genuineness. It communicates the posture of receiving someone into my very presence. According to Jesus, when we welcome children in a patient, open, genuine way, we are welcoming his very presence into our life in a mysterious way. Okay, to your right, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus here in Matthew 25 is talking about this future day of judgment. And he talks about how he will respond to some people on that future day. And it's pretty shocking. Listen to this, verse 35. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see that? As you did to who? The least of these. Now, to be clear and intellectually honest, I don't believe Jesus has children in view here. We have no reason to believe in the text that he is talking specifically or exclusively about children. But notice he mentions people who are hungry, thirsty, sick, and naked. You know who always seems to be hungry, thirsty, (laughs) sick, or naked? toddlers, right? (laughs) For whatever reason, like some combination of those. And Jesus says, when you feed the hungry, when you give water to the thirsty, when you care for the sick, when you clothe the naked, we are actually in some strange way doing those things unto him. So let me translate that, Justin's version. When you fill up another bowl of goldfish crackers, when you warm another bottle of milk, when you change another diaper, In a mysterious way, you are doing those things unto the Lord. Okay, last one. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 says this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. So the the Greek word here, it's actually little children. So think like like babies, infants, wobblers. These are kids that have to be carried to Jesus. Now, we read that and we go, wow, that's really sweet. Like, people are bringing their kids to see Jesus, much like we bring our kids to see Santa, you know, at Christmas. It's like, we'll get a picture, we'll do the thing, and we'll have the memory. But remember, in this culture, children aren't valued or honored, so what did the disciples do? Yeah, they rebuked them. Now, the grammar is somewhat vague, so it's unclear whether or not the disciples are rebuking the parents or the children, but most commentators speculate that the disciples are actually rebuking the children. Think about that. Peter sees a baby brought to Jesus, and he's like, get out of here, baby. We don't have time for you. But, verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whatever, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then watch what he does in verse 16. This is so beautiful. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying hands on them. Our Lord, who created the world and everything in it, who had so many problems he could have addressed while he was on earth, took moment to gather some children together, to lay hands on them and to bless them. 
the great preacher Edmund Clowney says of this passage, if the disciples thought children too small or unimportant for the serious work of the kingdom, they were wrong. Jesus welcomes children, takes them in his arms, and declares that of such is the kingdom of heaven. The force of his words is clear. Jesus declares to us, brothers and sisters, whatever we think of children, he is saying, do not hinder them. I welcome them into my presence. The question that we need to ask about this is, so what? Okay, like what do we do with this? How do we disciple the children of TCC? Well, I want to talk about two different ways we think about discipleship here. The first is in regards to Sunday morning. I want to talk about Sunday morning discipleship of our children. And then I want to talk about throughout the rest of the week. And both of those things are going to require something of every person in this room. So I just want to be really clear up front. I am asking a lot of you today. Some days, my hope is that you just feel loved by God. Like, I just want you to feel loved by God. And there are other days where I want you to feel inspired and convicted by the Holy Spirit. And today is one of those days. Just want to throw it out right up front. Okay. First, Sunday mornings. Each week, Molly and her team of staff and volunteers work really hard to make sure our kids are safe. We're trying to do three things. Make sure the kids are safe emotionally and physically. Make sure they have a blast. Like, we want them to have so much fun here. We want to hear the squeals of joy and laughter down the hallways. And we want to teach our children the gospel every week. We do not want our children to simply behave like they love Jesus. We want them to love Jesus. So we want to teach them the gospel each and every week. And it takes all of us, every single one of us. No one is off the hook here. And here's the harsh reality, and I just want to be really blunt. Coming out of COVID, church life has been a bit of a challenge. For some churches, it's a challenge because they came out of COVID and more than half their church was gone. And they don't know where anyone's at. For other churches, and this is, would be where we land, we came out of COVID and our church grew quite a bit. I would imagine a lot of you in here right now became part of our church through COVID in the last two years. But it's been really hard on the other end of COVID to find enough people to volunteer. So every Sunday, on a typical Sunday, we have about 100 children that will come through this building. 100 kids. And on a typical Sunday, we never have enough volunteers. Those two things are pretty consistent in our life right now as a church. 100 kids, not enough volunteers. To this day, we have still not been able to open all the kids' classrooms because we do not have enough volunteers. Additionally, as our church grows, it's becoming very apparent to us that until the Lord provides a different gathering space, the, the reality of a third gathering is probably not that too far in the distant future. More than likely in the fall, we will probably have to add a third gathering to accommodate, not necessarily this room, although this room's getting full, but children's space. And with that means we need more people to serve and kids, not less. So brass tacks, here's what I'm saying. Here's the ask. If you are not serving in table kids, one hour, once a month, that's the ask. One hour, once a month. If you're not doing that, please start. Please do it. All of us. You can still attend and then serve the next hour. One hour, once a month. And you may be thinking, but Justin, I don't like kids. <laughs> I hear that a lot. And you go, I, I kind of like them, but I'm not good with them. 
And then I hear this one a lot too. It's like, well, I'm with kids all week. I just want to come here and rest and get a break. With all due respect and love, and please hear this with love from your pastor. And this might feel harsh. Perhaps it's time to get over yourself for the sake of not babysitting, of making disciples in this church. Not too long ago, a leadership team at a neighboring church asked to meet with me. And I sat down with these leaders, and this church had been aging for some time and in pretty steady decline over the years. And they wanted to know how we were reaching so many young families. They had heard that we were having 100 kids show up to our children's ministry, and they wanted to know, how are you guys reaching so many children and young families? And then, with tears in their eyes, they talked about distant memories when kids would run up and down their hallway at church and how now, today, they don't even turn the lights on in the children's wing because not a single child is showing up on a Sunday morning. For whatever reason, God has entrusted to us, to all of us, if this is your church home, God has entrusted to us an army of children. And God have mercy on us if we squander this responsibility. We have a responsibility to these children. May we steward it well. So we need you, our children need you. So here's the ask again, one hour, once a month, partner with us to disciple children in our church. This isn't babysitting, this isn't begrudging service, this is an opportunity to disciple the next generation. So you can sign up today, you can do it on our app, you can do it on the website. There is a sign-up sheet literally in the lobby today and I would ask you to sign up for one of those spots. If you have questions about that, I'm happy to talk about it. Molly, our director of Table Kids, is happy to talk about it. So that's on Sunday, but now let's kind of shift gears and talk about the rest of the week. Let me read you a verse that kind of sets the stage for everyday family discipleship, and we'll come back to this every uh, week in our series. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me read this verse to you. This is often called the Shema. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just like a little key part of it here. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Here's what this means. Let me summarize it just simply. Parents in the room, adults in the room who have children in your life, it is our responsibility to raise, educate, equip, and disciple our children in the things of the Lord. Matt Chandler, who wrote a book on family discipleship, said it like this. Discipling your child is not primarily your church's job, your child's school's job, or your pastor's job. This job is yours. Family discipleship is not a joyless duty for which you should reserve some leftover energy. It is a priority of the highest order and the essential centerpiece of your household's rhythms. Making disciples at home is not one more thing to add to your list of parental tasks. It's the thing, the primary mission and calling that should undergird every single interaction your family is fortunate enough to have. So again, how do we do this? Well, if you were here, if you were one of the 70 or 80 people that were here for the uh, parenting and family discipleship conference over the last couple of days, you heard us talk about this, but there are three ways we can disciple our children in our home. Okay, three ways, time, moments, 
and milestones. Time, moments, and milestones. I want to walk through each of those with you. So for the next few minutes, let's walk through those. First, time. Time. Let me give you a definition of what we mean when we say time. And you're going to hear these phrases over and over and over again for years to come in our church. Time means this. Creating intentional time built into the rhythm of the family's life for the purpose of thinking about, talking about, and living out the gospel. So these are planned, scheduled times of devotion with your family. Now here's what it does not mean. Let me just ease the fear in the room. This does not mean that you have to write a sermon every day and sit your children down and expect them to be quiet and well-behaved for 30 minutes while you preach a sermon to them. If that is what you have in mind, you need to lower your expectations. That is not reality. What we're talking about are often short but sweet moments where we remind our children of God's love for them and his kindness to them. Let me give you some examples from the Peterson home. Um, First example is this. We eat dinner together every night as a family. Unless we're over at one of your house for dinner, Every night, we are home eating dinner together as a family. It is a priority for us. It is intentional. And we ask intentional questions of our girls when we're having a meal together. We believe that by gathering together around the table, we get to show our girls God's good provision and kindness to us. Furthermore, when we do this with either our biological family or our immediate family or our church family, it stands out as a prophetic witness to culture. Sociologists and cultural commentators have picked up on this in recent years, and they have talked about the stark reality of how Americans eat these days. Let me read you just a few statistics. One survey I read said that fewer than 30% of American families eat at home together four times a week or more. Another article in The Atlantic stated that 30% of families never eat dinner together around a table, but rather on a couch watching a TV show together. That same article said that 17% of families, and these are families most likely with teenagers, didn't even sit together, they would just fix their plate and go watch a show in their room alone. And this one blew my mind. 60 years ago, the average family ate dinner together at least five nights per week, and the average amount of time they would sit around the table was 90 minutes. The average time for a family, if they sit around a table and eat together, is 12 minutes. They rush through it and then go back to whatever activity they have next. So by eating together, even if it's chaotic, and in our family with the age of our girls, it is often chaotic, it's still a reminder of God's goodness and kindness that still tells the world around us that this is a value, that this is important. Another way, uh, another time moment for us is Sabbath. My family practices Sabbath every Saturday. We remind ourselves once a week that we can take a break, that we can turn off our phone and get off the rat wheel of productivity and the world's gonna keep on spinning. And we tell our daughters that. And we've been practicing Sabbath. We've been really great at it for seasons and not so great at seasons, but we've been practicing it for uh, about eight years. And our oldest daughter, all she knows is Sabbath. I'm pretty convinced she doesn't know Saturday is a day. I think she thinks it's called Sabbath day. (laughs) Because on Friday, she asks, like, Daddy, are you home? Is it Sabbath day tomorrow? I go, yeah, sweetie. And she knows that for our family, that means that Daddy's there that we get to play and worship and rest. It's an intentional time for us. It doesn't have to be either of those things. Let me give you just a few other ideas. Bedtime routines are really important. 
worship music on family drives or just around the house. Here's the thing, parents of young children, if you're anything like my wife and I, I'm kind of airing our dirty laundry here a little bit. We didn't listen to a lot of Christian music before kids. And even when our oldest was little, we would just still listen to the same music we listened to before that until we realized our two-year-old is starting to sing along. (laughs) And then you realize like, oh, these aren't wholesome songs necessarily. (laughs) So pay attention to that. Make that shift in your habits before your children start singing along. Take that from me. Okay. There are countless ways you can integrate this into your life. Uh, Family walks are another good way to build that in. Okay, so that's what we refer to as time. Now let's talk about moments. Moments. Moments are this, capturing and leveraging opportunities in the course of everyday life for the purpose of gospel-centered conversations. So contrary to time, gospel moments are not planned or scheduled. You cannot force them to happen. You just take them as they come. These are Holy Spirit impromptu moments where you just talk about the gospel. In order to do this, you have to be what Jeff Vanderstelt, author and pastor, calls gospel-fluent. The gospel must be our native tongue. In other words, we must be able to just speak the love of God into every moment of every day. I would argue that one of the best opportunities to do this with our children is when they sin in a big way. And I'm not talking about like those little moments of disobedience that pop up. I'm talking about the big ones, like when your teenager comes home drunk, when you find marijuana in your child's bedroom, when you look at their phone and you realize that they've been looking at some stuff they shouldn't be looking at, when your daughter sneaks out at night, or when your child blatantly lies to your face, even though you know the truth, in those moments, you get to bring the gospel to bear on their life. I've shared this story a few years ago, but I was reminded of it again this past week when my parents were in town. Um, when, I was a, when I was a boy, probably eight or nine, I had a pet bunny. And I loved this bunny for like a week. Because then the reality kicked in, like, I got to take care of this bunny. So, and, and we lived on, by Oregon standards at least, a big piece of property, and the bunny was at the back of the property, and every day I was supposed to go out there and, you know, give the bunny water and food and clean out the cage and all that stuff. And I wasn't so good at it, and my dad had to remind me a lot. And one day, my dad comes home from work, and he goes, son, did you feed the rabbit today? And without thinking about it, I just go, yes, sir, dad, fed that rabbit. And he goes, oh, great. And he walked away, didn't say anything. Now, did not feed the bunny that day, but it was just easier to lie than to face the consequence of my behavior. The next day, my dad comes home from work again. He goes, son, did you feed the rabbit? And again, I lie. Third day, he comes home from work. Son, did you feed the rabbit? Yes, sir, daddy. I fed that rabbit. At this point, I'm committed, right? Like, I've already lied so much, I gotta keep it going. This goes on, please don't judge me, for five days. And on the fifth day, my dad comes home from work and he says, and he's very serious this time, he says, son, don't lie to me. Did you feed your rabbit? And I go, dad, I'm not lying. I fed the rabbit. And then he goes, I know that you are lying to me. I know that you are lying to me. And and I said, dad, how do you know that I'm lying to you? And then he said these words. He said, son, I know you're lying to me because I buried your dead rabbit a week ago. Now, I don't remember what happened after that moment. (laughs) But I have to imagine that that was a hard moment on my father. His only son, his flesh and blood, 
looked him directly in the eye for a week straight and just lied to him. Here's the deal, parents, especially parents of young children. That day's coming for you. Now, hopefully not the rabbit part. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that day when your child looks at you and just lies, and you know it's a lie, and in that moment, you have the opportunity, you have the choice. Do you react in anger and shame that child? Or do you draw that child close and remind them of God's love and the payment that Jesus made for their sin? Ann Voskamp says this. She says, the moment I am most repelled by a child's behavior, that is my sign to draw close to that child. It's the moment we pull them in, we shepherd their heart. We must remember as parents, we are never dealing with words and actions alone. We're also dealing with the thing that controls those words and actions. We're dealing with the heart of our children. Justin Early says it like this. This is the radical job of a parent, to take the ordinary moments of discipline and stitch them into a life of discipleship. And to stitch them into a life of discipleship. Another way we can do this is just by redirecting misguided thoughts. I have more to say here, but we're running short on time, so I'll say it in the next gathering. You can catch it on the podcast later. <laughs> third, the third thing we do, so we have time, we have moments, we have milestones. Milestones, let me give you a definition. Making and marking occasions to celebrate and commemorate significant spiritual milestones of God's work in the life of the family and child. Think of these as those moments in the Old Testament where God commands the people of Israel to build a stone monument so they could remember God's faithfulness to them. We got a picture, uh, a really good picture of a milestone just moments ago when we did that senior celebration. This is a moment, a milestone for our, children, our students. We had to mark it and celebrate it. We also think of like baptism or first communion, but it can also include other other major moments in a child's life. For us, since both of our girls are adopted, there is going to come a time when they are a teenager where we are going to travel back to the place we adopted them and we are going to show them where they came from. That will be a milestone for our family. I've heard of families doing like prayers of dedication when a child turns 16 and gets to drive, making that a milestone. When you give a child a phone for the first time, that is a milestone moment. Pray over them. But we need to make and mark these milestone moments in a child's life. We will do a lot of these over the years as TCC. So think of like birthdays, celebrations, holiday traditions, anniversaries, anything that we can baptize with gospel intentionality and do for our children. So there you go, time, moments, and milestones. You'll hear a lot about those in the coming weeks. Now as we wrap up and we prepare our hearts for the tables of communion, I want to remind us of uh, something that has been a really sweet comfort for me this week as I prepared this sermon. Discipling children, the day-to-day -day nurturing of children into the likeness of Christ, please hear me, it is not glamorous. In fact, it's often messy, it's mundane, and often it is infuriating. It is not glamorous, but brothers and sisters, it is beautiful, and God has called all of us to it. This past week, our friend Catherine sent a text to ask what we were doing. And we had just started cooking dinner and we said, we're just about to eat dinner. Why don't you swing by for dinner? Now, Catherine is a part of our family. She has been a part of our life before we were parents. So she has quite literally been side by side with us as we have raised our two daughters. When she comes to our house, there's no posturing or pretense. She just comes on in, she joins in the chaos. And as we sat around the dinner table that night, our four-year-old had a meltdown because she couldn't find her calico critter and then she wanted to eat her blueberries, but not out of a bowl and not with her hand. She wanted to eat them off the table, just like a bird, like pecking blueberries. <laughs> you gotta choose your battles as a parent. And then our oldest 
daughter, um, she was upset because she had to eat asparagus, not her favorite. And she was mad because her little sister was, quote, breathing too loud <laughs> for her liking. And then Catherine started asking him about their day, and I was reminded that God did not call me to parent, did not call Katie and I to parent in isolation, but he gave us a community of brothers and sisters to parent alongside of us, to disciple our children. And when we come to the tables of communion each week, we come to the tables not in isolation. We come surrounded by brothers and sisters who are holding us up, who are encouraging us every step of the way. But here's the reality. It's even better than that. Because not only does God give us a church family to partner with, he empowers us with his presence through the Holy Spirit. So parents in the room, if you missed everything else I said today, please do not miss this. God did not call you to parent because you are able. He called you to parent because he is able. Your hope as a parent is not found in your power, your wisdom, your character, your experience, your creativity, or your success, but in this one thing alone. God is with you every moment. The creator, savior, almighty, sovereign king is with you. Let your hearts rest in his love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the gift that is children. Lord, we admit fully that there are times when it is difficult. There are times when we lose our patience, when we struggle to see the meaning in all of this. But God, when we look at the scriptures, what we see very clearly is that children are a gift. And for whatever reason, God, you have entrusted a lot of gifts to this church. May we steward it well. Lord, give us the strength and the wisdom and the endurance to make disciples of this next generation here. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.